This week, we'd like to start a four-part series on the Incarnation. To do so, let me pray. I'll do a little introduction, get right into the talk. I hope it will be a blessing to you all, but also challenging, inspiring, push us a little bit further into this story of Jesus. So let's pray. God, thank you so much for this gathering. I bless you tremendously for all of these amazing people. And every time I know I personally get to say hello and hear stories, I'm just uh, continually in awe at the spirit that you have gathered into this place. And so continually bind us closer together. Would you just strengthen this community? Um, Would you continually challenge us and push us to become more and more like your son, Jesus? Um, And may we live out the fullness as best as we can of the presence of your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray in your name. Amen. Incarnation. And the word became flesh. Let me share with you a little bit of an introduction into this series and why I think it's important. First, let's start with some etymology. What is this word? Big, theological, conceptual word. Incarnation is Latin for become flesh or to be made into flesh. And it's grounded in the scriptures. It's grounded in the biblical story and narrative. And primarily, it's grounded in this passage from John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Later on in verse 14, the Word became flesh. And made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which we have in our Bibles, formulate the best pieces of literature that we have to try to figure out one, who was this Jesus? Two, What did these early followers of Jesus believe about this Jesus? And this verse, as well as others that we will take a look at throughout this series, became extremely prominent in the minds and in the thinking of who this Jesus is. And the early followers made the incarnation, the idea that this thing, the word, the divine word, and that word, by the way, comes from Genesis chapter 1 when God spoke into creation, Uh, spoke into chaos and created creation, all of that, all of that cosmic power, all of that divine essence became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And throughout Christian history, pretty much from the very beginning, this idea that God, whatever definitions, concepts, ideas you have of God, has come down and taken on a really profane grotesque, mortal stuff such as flesh. And this mystery, this divine mystery of the incarnation is central to Christian teaching, Christian ideas, and Christian ideals. You'll see it often in symbols. This is a Celtic symbol where if you take three circles, one of them representing the Father, one of them representing the Son, one of them representing the Holy Spirit, then you craft from that symbols that help you understand and encapsulate in image and in picture this idea of the incarnation. And I'm throwing this up here because the incarnation, the idea that 
God has become flesh in the form of Jesus the Son is deeply tied to the concept or the idea of the Trinity, another big theological word to simply mean that there are three parts of who God is, but only one God. There's a lot of different analogies for this, of course. The egg is my favorite, that there's the white, there's the yolk, and there's the shell, but all three of them are actually egg. You can't point to one of them and say that isn't egg. They're all egg, but there's three distinct parts. There's some other analogies for it, snap, crackle, and pop, three great sounds, one great cereal. Not so. I mean, you can go with that one if you'd like. There's all sorts of different ways that you can try to describe this grand mystery of the Trinity and the incarnation being one of these core central tenets. So much so is the importance of the idea of the Trinity that Bart Ehrman, who is not a Christian, by the way, who has completely rejected the faith, has written about his historical evaluation of how important the Trinity or the incarnation is. And he would say that without the incarnation, without the idea that God, the universal God, has come down into flesh, this early movement of Jesus would simply remain a Jewish sect. It wouldn't have exploded or wouldn't have moved past that small little enclave of believers. But it did, and it involved and invited more people to come, not just the Jewish people, but now Gentile people, which would, I would imagine, is most of us in this room, most of us listening to this message. And as a result of that and the explosion of the popularity of Christianity, Constantine then makes it the state religion. And of course, it's a very complicated history, but this is a summation. And as it becomes a state religion, then the prominence and the efficacy and the pride of place of the Christian church within Western civilization takes hold. And as a result of the Christian church taking hold in Western civilization, that leads to other things like the Renaissance and the Reformation and what would ultimately be called modernity. And several historians, Rodney Stark is another one that just comes to mind, has written about the movement of Christian theology to the modern world that we have to this particular day. So there's a quick summation of the centrality and the importance of the incarnation. This big theological word so central to our Western historical heritage that starts with the person of who Jesus is. It's absolutely central. That's how important it is. And so that's why we're going to talk about incarnation. And over the next four weeks, I hope to share with you some insights, some implications, that if we were to grab hold of what the incarnation actually means and what the biblical writers are attempting to communicate by the concept and by the idea of the incarnation, that God has become this, fleshly bones and blood and skin. If we can understand this, if we can dig deep into all of the implications and the beauty of this, then we can discover that there is some really, truly brilliant meaning for how we are to live and who we are as Christians, and who we are as believers. So, let's start with the question today. What does this mean? Now, I would like to go back today and start with the mind, and start thinking, and next couple weeks we'll move to the heart and the spirit, we'll move to some other portions, but today I would like to start with the mind. I would like to start with thinking, philosophy, and to do that, you have to start with old dead guys. Have you ever heard of Plato, Aristotle, Socrates? Yes. Moron. Now, uh, rather than just morons, these people were actually quite brilliant. And one of the things that they were attempting to do back in the 4th 
5th century B.C., so we're talking, you know, over 2,500 years ago now, one of the main questions that they're wrestling with is how do you make sense of the chaotic world in which we live? And I love that question to begin with because I have a feeling that most of us in this room, whether it's through a job or a work event, or whether it's through a relationship event, or whether it's through a tragic event, most of us in this room, through all of those ups and downs, those twists and turns, those ebbs and flows of life, are really trying to make sense of the chaos of this world. There was something that happened to you recently, and it just doesn't make sense. And you're trying to ask the simple question, what does this mean? How can I make sense of it? And if I can make sense of it or find meaning or purpose in this chaos, then maybe that will help me cope with whatever it is that I'm going through in life and help me to formulate a better future. This question has been asked by philosophers for thousands of years, and I find it brilliant and I find it so fascinating and insightful that all of us today are still wrestling with this same question. How do we, how do you make sense of the chaos that exists right here. Well, Plato, one of his explanations was to talk about the thing that is right before you, the physical thing. You're all sitting on chairs, you're sitting at tables, you're wearing clothes, you're breathing air. There are some physical things in this room. Plato, part of his philosophical development, would then ask some simple questions. Is that thing, this very gross, earthly, physical, mortal thing that is before you, is that really the most real thing? And Plato came up with this idea or formulated a philosophical framework that said, no, the chair isn't the real thing. The idea of a chair is actually the real thing. The, the chair that you're sitting in might be physical, but what's more real is the idea or the concept of a chair. In fact, it's so real that if the chair did not exist, the idea or the concept of chair would still exist. And so what began to happen through Platonic thinking and philosophy is that all of the things that we see around us, all of the fleshly things, the physical things, all of this stuff around us is, is really not that real. In fact, it might be an illusion of what is real. What is actually real, what is mostly real, are the ideas or the concepts or the things that are above. He called them forms and ideas. And as a result of that, Plato didn't really like knowledge that came through the senses. He didn't like sight, touch. I mean, we understood that we get things from them, but what is ultimately real is that's all physical stuff. The best and highest real is the idea. And part of the reason why Plato didn't like this physical stuff, the sensory stuff, is because think about how you can really know anything through the physical. The wind blows, and one of you says, oh my gosh, it's so cold. And the other one says, oh, it's so refreshing. Same wind, two very different responses. Same environment, two very different ideas. Plato talked about wine and about how some people can drink wine and participate in wine and be very happy and merry and healthy, and others can drink wine and it can be destructive. So this is Platonic thought. The idea that the idea or the form of the thing is more real, more important than the physical thing that you're sitting on. 
Now, if you think I'm talking high philosophy, I am, but part of what's so brilliant is that philosophy like this makes its way into everyday life. How many of you have seen this movie, Inside Out? And if you haven't seen it, it is brilliant. And what I'd like to do is share with you how this Pixar movie took what I'm talking about, the concept and the idea of abstract thinking, and put it into animation form. Check this out. I know a shortcut. Come on, this way. Oh, I'm so glad we ran into you. The station is right through here. After you. Joy, what? Well, I read about this place in the manual. We shouldn't go in there. Bing Bong says it's the quickest way to headquarters. No, but Joy, this is abstract thought. What are you talking about? I go in here all the time. It's a shortcut, you see? D-A-N-G-E-R. Shortcut. I'll prove it to you. Look at me. I'm closer to the station because I'm taking the shortcut. Let's go around. This way. Almost there. If you want to walk the long way, go for it. But Riley needs to be happy. I'm not missing that train. Bing Bong knows what he's doing. He's part dolphin. They're very smart. Well, I guess. Okay. What abstract concept are we trying to comprehend today? Um, Loneliness. Hmm, looks like there's something in there. I'm gonna turn it on for a minute and burn out the gunk. what I tell you? You'll be at headquarters in no time. Oh. Hey, would you look at that? Oh, whoa. What's happening? No, they turned it on. Ah. Never seen this before. Ah. Ah. My face! My beautiful face! No. What is going on? We're abstracting. There are four stages. This is the first. Non-objective fragmentation. All right, do not panic. What is important? is that we all stay together. Oh! oh. We're in the second stage. We're deconstructing. Run! Ah. I can't feel my legs. Oh, there they are. Come here, me. Oh. We gotta get out of here oh. before we're nothing but shape and color. Oh. We'll get stuck here forever. Stuck? Oh. Why do we come in here? I told you. It's a shortcut. The train. Okay, so it's a brilliant depiction of stages of abstraction, which is part of psychological development all of us go through. Little kids don't know how to abstract. They see you, the physical thing, and slowly over time, as they begin to learn this abstract thought, you are no longer a person of whom I relate. You are now eyes and nose that everybody else has. That's the fragmentation. It goes on and on and on. And what's really, really key about this idea and this concept, stemming all the way back to Platonic theory, even pulling into modern adolescent psychology, is that is this fundamental idea that abstraction is the idea, the concept that there is something that you can know or understand that is not physically present. And for Plato and for Heraclitus, these things are what are more real. So in addition to that, if Plato is thinking along these lines, it's within the same thinking, the same philosophical stream that Heraclitus was starting to develop, which instead of making sense of the physical individual parts of ourselves now started to try to make sense of the entirety of the universe. 
really briefly, he came up with this idea that the entire universe could be explained by one main word, and that word was logos. Logos, the word that means word or reason or logic or mind or wisdom, speech, intelligent thought, meaning. That was the divine concept through which everything was made to be understood. And if you could grasp, if you could understand the logos, which is the logic, the reason, the meaning behind it all, then you could really truly understand the rest of everything else. Uh, Richard Tarnas, in his book, The Passion of the Western Mind, writes this, The Logos was a divine revelatory principle by which human intelligence could attain universal understanding. The Logos was a divine revelatory principle by which human intelligence could attain universal understanding. Now, why am I telling you all of this about abstract thought, ideas, forms, high philosophy? The reason I'm sharing this with you is because those guys show up in the 5th, 4th century B.C. Alexander the Great, through his military conquests and what I would call his Greek evangelism of the world, takes these ideas and spreads them throughout the ancient world. And most people in the ancient world, by Jesus' time, have these philosophical backgrounds and understandings. And it is into that world, a world in which philosophy began reaching towards the heavens, reaching towards the skies, reaching towards abstract ideas, reaching towards forms, the things that are the most real things that you could ever comprehend or understand. It is in that world that John writes the phrase, in the beginning, was the word, in Greek, logos. In the beginning was all of that. Everything that you can think of, mind, reason, rationale, the very beginning, the underpinning of the entire universe, all of that that you can think and conceptualize, in the beginning was that word. And verse 14, all of that becomes flesh. Everything that you could possibly reason, everything that you could possibly understand, everything you could possibly conceptualize has now come down here and made its way amongst us. The incarnation is a brilliant move from logos to what is known as sarks. Sarks is flesh, carne, skin, body. If you've ever heard of the word sarcophagus, it is a mouth for the flesh, a box that you put dead people in. And this movement launches into this ancient world where a bunch of people are trying to reach up to the greatest ideas and ideals, the greatest forms, the greatest thoughts, the greatest reason, the greatest rationale, the greatest philosophy, into a world where people are constantly doing that. And John says, that is coming down here. So then you have stories about this logos, this word, this divine revelation, writing in the dirt, blessing a woman caught in the act of adultery. You have this logos, this divine reason, actually healing, putting sight back where it's supposed to be. You have this logos, this divine reason, raising people from the dead. You can talk all you want about what's up there, 
the reason and the rationale and the ideas. This story, this incarnation, this Jesus story that I want the world to know about is about how that up there is coming down here. While religion, mythologies, and philosophies are attempting to reach up to higher truth, the incarnation is God's beautiful, brilliant, universal truth reaching down to earth. From up to down. This, in my mind, is one of the most brilliant and explosive concepts that we have in our scriptures. And that's why I want to spend a few weeks talking about the incarnation. Another way to put it is we're going from abstract to concrete. Physical, tangible, hair, flesh, bones, blood, speech, word, I can hear, smell, taste. This story of Jesus is about what happens here. Now, I would be remiss if I were to just share with you the concept. I thought of this image. I hope it works for you. This is a concrete image of what I think is happening in the tension between philosophers trying to reach up to higher truth and the incarnation trying to reach down. Working so hard desperately to try to get up trying to make your way to, but maybe this is higher, maybe this is higher, maybe this concept, maybe this idea, maybe this form is higher. And the entire time, it is as if this story is saying, what are you doing? Now, there's nothing wrong with philosophy. I love, yeah, I love that. There's nothing wrong with philosophy. How many of you actually done this? Be honest, yeah. Okay, so we have a lot of you in here. There's nothing wrong with philosophy. There's nothing wrong with thinking. There's nothing wrong with intellectualism. But the incarnation comes to us and says, while you're doing all of that, God is trying desperately to get all of that truth down here. Physical. Touch it. See it. Feel it. Philosophy, mythology, it's all about the idea incarnation. It's all about the image. The sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, right here on earth. Philosophy, mythology, even religion is about high theology. And I started looking up all sorts of really big theological words. You can Google them later. From high theology to incarnation. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God, listen, Something to be used to his own advantage, something to be grasped at, some translations say. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And from abstract to concrete. This is a faith. This is a Jesus. This is a religion that we can touch, we can feel, that we can sense, that we can smell, that reaches here deeply, viscerally. There may be some great ideas or concepts, but have you seen this God? That's the question of the incarnation. Can you smell the sweat of his brow, the mixture of sweat and blood at the crucifixion? Come, taste, and see. 
that the Lord is good. And allow him to have hands-on crafting, molding, shaping. And I find it no mistake that the very first word in the most important passage in the Bible, Deuteronomy 6.4, starts with the phrase, here, listen. Not up there, down here. You know, in thinking about this, I thought of somebody who knows this brilliantly. Her name is Mrs. Rosé. She's a colleague of mine where I work at the King's Academy. We put on camps, we put on events all the time. And like you do at a Christian school or whenever you're in a youth ministry, you're trying to communicate concepts and ideas to junior hires. Have you ever tried this? And one of the things that Mrs. Rosé says to me all the time, by the way, she is a junior high worker herself, so she knows what she's doing. One of the things that she has always said every time we put together a program, she asks me the question, how can we make this more concrete? Every time. Because she knows and she understands that concepts and ideas fly over the heads of junior hires. And you have to figure out a way, what's the image? What's the picture? What's the smell? What's the feeling? That's how we have to communicate. And I love her reminders all the time because it is exactly what this God did for us. Not, hey, you got to reach up a little bit higher. you got to go more systematic theology. No. This is a God who comes down here and relates to us in flesh and in bones. How does this work out? There are some concepts and there are some ideas. We all know that we belong to the family of God or a child of God, but incarnation means that this is what it looks like. This is what it means. This is what it feels like to be a part of the family. How many of you know the concept or the idea of joy? Yes? That's the idea. That's the concept. You should be more joyful. Thanks. But then there are times Wow. There just are no words. When was the last time you felt, heard, sensed that kind of joy? We know the concept of good. We know the concept of benevolence. We know the concept of compassion, justice, and mercy. Incarnation says, but do we feel it? One of the phrases I've been using about our outreach for the Syrian refugees is tangible compassion where we take the idea and the concept that we should be good in this world and actually incarnate it into this world. This goes to other concepts and ideas too. We've, in the Christian church, talked a lot about sin. And there's a lot of really brilliant, articulate, erudite kind of definitions around what sin is. But in the Bible, sin is simply missing the mark. Oh, you, you, didn't, you didn't get it quite where you needed it to be. So let's help you get it where it needs to be. And then incarnation, I think, has the implication for us in this particular question. What is a Christian and what is Christianity? 
You know, the great paradox of this message and the idea of incarnation is that a Christian is somebody who believes in the incarnation. A Christian is somebody who believes that Jesus is God-made flesh. A Christian is somebody who affirms that and believes it deep in their soul. A Christian is somebody who can articulate very clearly how all the omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, sovereign, divine essence of who God is, is in Jesus. That's the great paradox of this definition, right? But according to incarnation, and according to this movement from up to down, and according to the ways maybe in which Jesus has called and inspired us to live in this world, maybe a Christian is somebody who's got blood on their shirt. Maybe a Christian is somebody who has dust on their feet. Maybe a Christian is somebody who feels the pain and the hurts and has sat and wept with somebody who has suffered. Maybe Christianity is about carrying the burdens of each other. Maybe a Christian is somebody who suffers alongside. Now, let me just say, I'm not denying any of those other theological ideas or concepts. But incarnation challenges us. If we're only constantly trying to get up there, where is the honoring of the God and the truth that has tried to make its way down here? And maybe when we define ourselves as a Christian, maybe it is not, I can check off all of these things that I know. I've had conversations with people who come to Jesus, they have this wonderful conversion experience, and then they go to seminary, and then they learn all of these concepts, and something shifts. I can see it. They feel like they are more of a Christian because they have now acquired all of this great knowledge, and there is this thing that can happen where you get so heavenly-minded, you are just no earthly good, because incarnation doesn't call us just to know every facet, every nuance every philosophical tenet of what incarnation is. Incarnation asks us, where is the chaos in your world? And how have you come down into it? Because that's the movement of Jesus. That's the idea of incarnation. That's the essence of what it means to be a follower of a God who has become flesh. A God that goes not calling you from down to up, but goes from up to down. And I suppose my encouragement for those of you in this room who are asking the question, where is meaning, purpose, sense in all of the chaos in the world? That's what this series is about. Because that God, who we worship, who we love, who we adore, who we sing about, is coming down here. And he does so through his community. He did so 2,000 years ago in the person of Jesus. He's doing so again today. And the Word. All of the divine ideas, concepts, the universal way in which we can make sense of this world, all of that has become flesh. And you never know, it might be sitting right next to you. That's how close this flesh is. And I hope that this series of incarnation helps us to flesh out all of the brilliant truth of what this gospel writer John is saying, and the word became flesh.
And I hope that you will wrestle with us. What does this mean for me as a believer? What does this mean as a non-believer? What does this mean for somebody, as, as somebody who's just trying to figure all of this out? Oh, a big part of what this means is to get your hands dirty, get your feet dusty, shed a little blood, sweat, and tears, and figure out what this means right here amongst flesh and bones. God, I thank you so much for my friends here and pray that in this very quick introduction, we will be inspired once again to consider deeply the brilliant truth of you coming down to earth. And while many of us are sometimes caught up in the ideas and the ideals and trying to reach up to greater understandings, help us to pause for a moment in all of that and figure out how we can become incarnate followers of you. And I just want to pray for all of us, for those of us who are followers of you. May we figure out a way this week to flesh out truly what your love is in this world, to flesh out your justice in this world, to flesh out your kingdom in this world. Help us to do that today, tomorrow, this week. And honestly, for the rest of our lives. And I pray in your name. Amen.